Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. We are continuing on with our discussion about inerrancy and church divisions. Last episode, we talked a lot about uh, the Protestant reformations and some of the big differences between Protestant and Catholic beliefs and how those differences are largely due to the fact that the Bible is not teaching one singular teaching on these issues. And in fact, it's teaching many different things and even some conflicting things. And when people have read the Bible through history, they've come down on various sides of all these things. Our main point is that the major fallacy here is an assumption that the Bible is free of error. Um, But today, we're going to get into the church splits that we see in the Protestant churches and the scriptural basis for these disagreements. Now, before we get into all that, I want to say up front, This isn't a comprehensive list of splits or viewpoints, and there is a lot of nuance um, and details involved with each example that we talk about. Uh, Each of those subjects have been debated about, and tons of ink has been spent laying out all the little details. We are going to do our best to give just a brief overview of the issues. Any one of these could be an entire uh, podcast series. Um, And in time, we hope to do some of these controversies in a lot more detail. Okay, disclaimer over. Let's get into a little bit of today's content. I think it makes sense to start with um, an issue that's major within the Protestant church. It's still dividing Christians to this day, that being the predestination versus free will debate. Um, and Ben, I thought maybe you could kick it off a little bit to introduce us to that issue. Yeah, this is always a fun one. I remember, um, John, you grew up in a reformed church, so I'm, I'm sure that, uh, it was much more commonplace for you to learn about predestination or for it to be sort of uh, second nature to you. Um, I can still remember the first time I was in, in a sermon and they spoke about predestination and how shocking it was to me. So um, maybe this doctrine will be shocking to you. Um, maybe it'll be sort of old hat, but we want to certainly show how ambiguity in scripture and um, different scriptures uh, have divided the church on the issue of predestination versus free will. And I think the way that a lot of people think of this as a division between Calvinism and Arminianism, um, they're both named after two theologians whose uh, names have sort of been identified with these two beliefs. And Calvinism, for example, uh, I'm going to use in a really limited sense, 
Calvin's doctrine of uh, salvation was more complicated than just predestination. It consisted of five parts, but I'm really going to focus kind of narrowly on predestination here. And uh, Calvinism really hinges on a doctrine of election with eternal damnation for those who are not among the elect. Um, there's a process of salvation. Um, it's a Latin phrase, ordo salutis, which means the order of salvation. And uh, the term predestination is a frequent term that's used in this discussion. Reformed theology generally um, believes that predestination is a broader term and includes two aspects of election, one for believers and um, reprobation for unbelievers. However, uh, the term double predestination is sort of frowned upon. Um, it gives the impression that election and reprobation are carried out in the same way, um, and then there's no differences between the two. So uh, election, according to Calvin's uh, doctrine, is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Um, and you can see this many times in Scripture. I think that um, in Romans, Paul gives a really clear picture of this in Romans 8, um, in a really famous passage, at the beginning part at least, he says, We know that everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So according to predestination, that chain of called, justified, glorified um, relates to God's choosing before the beginning of time and the working out of the process of salvation. In the next chapter, um, Paul is even more explicit about the uh, way that this is unmerited by anything that we do. He says, uh, he uses the example of Jacob and Esau. He says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, 11 through 13. Um, in Ephesians... Uh, we see that the author of Ephesians has a similar philosophy of um, election. He says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He destined us in love to be His sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Interestingly, um, that language sounds very different than the Paul that we just read when he talks about election. Um, but the concept I think is very similar. That's just my little commercial for, I think Ephesians being a different author. Um, I think even just in that little snapshot, you can sort of see, but let's not be distracted. Uh, just a couple more passages. The first letter, the church in Thessalonica, ah, it's a hard word to say, for we know brethren beloved by God, that he has chosen you, for our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Uh, that's from First Thessalonians 1, 4-5. And in the second book, he writes, We are bound to give thanks 
to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and in belief in the truth. Um, there's a bunch of other examples of this concept um, in the New Testament, but I think that's pretty sufficient to show the uh, Calvinist position. It's pretty clear then. So, I mean, very clearly, there are verses from Paul that say, before the beginning of time, God chose certain individuals that mar that were marked out to be saved. And there's nothing that anybody can do in themselves to acquire that salvation. It's completely at God's discretion. And on the flip side um, is reprobation, where the people have been marked out before the beginning of time to be damned before they were ever born, and there's absolutely nothing they can do. And it's a, this is a concept that um, it's pretty clearly taught in those verses, and this is why people like John Calvin came across it and said, yeah, this is, this is the way it is. Yeah, actually, I have a quote from Calvin uh, with regard to reprobation. He said, the decree is dreadful indeed, I confess. That's from the Institutes. I mean, we're gonna, you're going to go on to talk about free will and the Arminian position, but there are, there are other contradictions involved with this doctrine. I mean, does this align with the nature of God, God being all merciful, all loving, the, these type of attributes that were given in many places in the Bible? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I was just going to introduce reprobation as a concept uh, to lead into sort of how the Arminian position developed. And I just wanted to read again from Romans 9. Um, and it sort of has to do with what you're saying, John. So we would say, you know, this this seems to go in contradiction to other places in the Bible where we're taught that God is loving and, um, and some passages that we'll talk about in a second. Um, but as far as Paul is concerned, Paul's response to the question of, uh, is this in the character of God is, but who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty and another for menial use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the, ves the vessels of wrath made for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That's Romans 9, 20 to 24. So I think that um, this doctrine is troubling. I mean, it troubled John Calvin, but I think that Paul's response is, who are we to question um, this doctrine? Who are we to say to God that he can't make us um, in for whatever purposes that he wants to make us? Arminianism, I think, were, was rightly um, appalled uh, from a human perspective by this doctrine of um, God's election to damnation. I was surprised to learn this, John, that um, Arminianism as a term actually came about in the 1700s. It started with Charles Chauncey, the minister of the First Church of Boston. He uh, became super critical of Calvinist theology and of the revivals sweeping New England, uh, the revivals with Jonathan Edwards. I'm sorry, I was a, a history minor and a religious major, so I, I, go, I can only speak of these things in somewhat a historical context. Um, so I found this interesting. And um, 
due to his reaction from Calvinism, especially the doctrine of particular particular election that only a select few were saved, you know, they maintained that any benefit uh, from Jesus' life and death was for the whole world and not for just the elect, a view that we'll probably cover, I think, a little bit later on in the podcast, and to that end that all souls will be saved. They also disagreed with Paul's uh, and the Reformation's emphasis on faith alone and the disparagement of good works. And so out of this movement uh, became this more liberal theology uh, was born called Arminianism. Hearkening back to um, John Arminius and his views on free will. And I think that part of it was reaction to the view of uh, Calvinist world as extremely fatalistic and mechanical, where human choice was reduced to sort of a caricature of human freedom, uh, where we were free to do what we desired, but that um, that freedom was really an illusion, not genuine. I mean, we were our freedom was limited and already uh, we were we had our freedom decided before the beginning of time. Surprisingly, uh, Calvinists will use certain verses in the Bible to argue against the mechanical and fatalistic perspective. Um, but these verses oftentimes are verses that give support to an Arminian position of um, God's desire being not just for the elect to come to salvation, but for the whole world to be um, coming to salvation or for a genuine call to go out to um, people that the Bible treats as being able to either accept or uh, not accept that call. So Jesus invites everyone in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, you know, only the elect come to me or only those who I have called. The call goes out seemingly to anyone who wants to come and get, get rest. Even in Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come and let... Who hears say, come, and let him who is thirsty come, let him who desire take the water of life without price. You know, Jesus cries out in sorrow um, at Jerusalem's rejection of him. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I get, have gathered your children together as a hen gathers his brood under her wings, and you would not. Um, so clearly... You know, Jesus has the desire, according to Matthew, to uh, bring Jerusalem to him and, and is bringing a, a genuine call that they could either accept or not accept. Um, and he even basically says, I would have gathered them to to me if I could, um, but you refuse. And so I can't. Yeah, Ben, let me just jump in for a minute. I mean, they have there are verses in the Bible that um, clearly talk about. Um, and you've, you've gone through a couple of them and how God wills all men to be saved. Um, and that, that's why there's such an emphasis on um, believing, especially in the Gospels, you see it. And the, I, I would say the Gospels do not read at all uh, as Calvinistically. I mean, I'm sure people would debate me on that. But I mean, there's a, a big emphasis on believing and being, being persuaded and that's not something you would expect if this has all been ironed out before the beginning of time. Um, we're going to get into later when we talk about universalism and this idea that everybody's going to heaven, which sounds like a radical idea, but um, the Bible at places um, clearly states that, and, and we'll, we're going to get into that in, in detail, but I think it's related to this, and all to say that, again, to our core point, which we're going to keep coming back to over and over, is that it really depends what verse you're reading in the Bible. 
um, to, you know, to determine which philosophy or theology or doctrine that you are going to adhere to. Um, the, 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 the impossible thing is when uh, you say, no, there's only, there can only be one doctrine because the Bible can only be speaking one thing. And you see it here with uh, predestination and free will. There is a, this is the reason for the divide because um, some people are stressing certain verses and other people are saying, no, this verse completely says the opposite of that. So I'm going to go with that one. And, uh, and then the way they hash it out um, is usually by, uh, well, the church divides and you have different denominations that are Calvinist predestination believing churches and then certain denominations that are more Arminian and they believe in free will. And uh, that's just a little aside to uh, what you're getting at. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if we look at the uh, most famous verse probably in the New Testament is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, that's a verse that sort of leaves it open that anyone who believes could have everlasting life. Um, But I think that we'll see also in a lot of these discussions is that there's ambiguity even in the in some of the passages um each side thinks is clear um there's enough ambiguity that they interpret in different ways i know even romans 8 the foreknowledge passage um is interpreted by the arminian position as god knowing what our decision would be before the beginning of time yeah, like you said, growing up in the Reformed Church, it you know I heard all kinds of um, you know this debate was was going on there because we had people that would come visiting from Baptist churches that were Armenian, and so this discussion was a lively one, um, and and uh, you know I heard it all the time, and it was really that conflict that everyone was constantly trying to iron out the idea that somehow how are we actually responsible for our sins if we actually aren't even in control of our will. In, in other words, if you believe in, in what the Bible says, what Paul says about predestination, you actually really can't believe that it was even in our power to even sin or to do anything. Everything was everything that is done is through the not just foreknowledge of God, but the actual um, will of God. God is actually in a way... Um, you know, causing those actions. And that's a really hard thing to understand and figure out. And and honestly, I've heard probably 10 different like Calvinist explanations for, to how to define all these things. And every one of them is different just to show you that, you know, this is why it's a conflict because it's, it's, again, it's just one of those things where I think it's completely impossible to make these two things square. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. Um, If you get into the philosophical, I remember reading about Jonathan Edwards' debates and about the freedom of the will and basically the sort of uh, intellectual gymnastics that have to be done in order to preserve human freedom, but also divine control. So you're acting in a way that's consistent with your will and what you desire, but it doesn't um, mean that you're in control of what you actually desire. Um, But clearly there's different teachings in scripture um, that have influenced different movements um, when it comes to free will and predestination. That's the, the the point. Yeah. I think that was a really good point that you made about um, 
you really have to kind of create something outside of the Bible, which again goes against what we talked about. Um, remember, we're we're talking about a Protestant controversy here, and um, the Protestant whole Protestant Reformation was based on this idea of sola scriptura. We talked about it in the last episode, where you're supposed to use only the Bible and not tradition. But because the Bible is not clear on these issues, we have to have things. We have to have confessions. Uh, you know, you have confessions and catechisms that um, use the Bible, but they all they go beyond that to define it and really clarify these things. And like you said, it becomes kind of like a twisted, jumbled mess trying to figure these things out. Um, and then you you almost have this this confession, which almost becomes a standard in itself, an authority within itself. But Ben, let's move on. We spent a good amount of time, I think, on um, predestination and free will. I wanted to get into a little bit on the um, sacraments. Um, so the Lord's Supper, uh, the sacraments being in, in the Protestant Church, um, the two sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And um, the Lord's Supper was instituted in the Gospels. Uh, here it is in Matthew 26, uh, verses 26 through 29. Now, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So this is, in the Gospels, telling a story of the Last Supper. And um, in church tradition, as the church evolved, it became a, a thing where once a week they would gather and, and celebrate um the death and resurrection of Jesus by, in one sense or another, eating his body and drinking his blood. So this has been a dividing issue. The uh, Catholic Church has a um, doctrine called transubstantiation, and transubstantiation teaches that the bread and the juice of the Eucharist miraculously changes into the literal flesh and blood of Jesus. It's an actual supernatural miracle that takes place every time you participate in the Eucharist. And I've read many different um, explanations about how that works. Like they would say, well, if you were to test the, if you were to go into the stomach and test the bread, um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't test as human flesh, but, but still its essence is literally the actual flesh in some way. And none of that really makes any sense, you know, scientifically, which is the way I'm trying to think about it, but that is what they teach. Um, so Martin Luther had an issue with that. Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation um, came up with his own kind of interpretation of this. And instead of transubstantiation, it's called... Um, consubstantiation con meaning um with so with the sub it's it's with the substance um of jesus body as opposed to transubstantiation which is actually like turning it into that substance um so consubstantiation i got this from zondervan academic uh, by consubstantiation we mean that jesus christ is present in 
with and under the bread and the wine whenever the Lord's Supper is celebrated. Luther very clearly distinguished his view from transubstantiation. There is no mythical change of the substance of the bread and wine. However, when the church celebrates the Lord's Supper, Christ is present in with and under the elements of the bread and wine. Um, a third view, I'm gonna, there's two other views here, is a um, by a guy named Huldrych Zwingli. And this is the on-memorial view. In other words, what is most important about the Lord's Supper is Christ's command to do this, to celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him, his death on behalf of our sins. So what the elements, the bread and the cup of wine really do for us is help us to remember that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. The celebration of the Lord's Supper really is a time to remember and reflect on what Christ has done through his death. So it's basically, I would say, a way to um, memorialize and remember, uh, but nothing more. There's, um, it's, it's even, a, I would say, a lower view than even Luther with consubstantiation. And then there's Calvin's view. We talked about Calvin before. His view on the Lord's Supper is the spiritual presence view. A fourth view is that of John Calvin, usually called the spiritual presence view. It's not transubstantiation and it's not consubstantiation, and it goes beyond Zwingli's memorial view. For John Calvin, there are symbols. These are symbols that are very powerful. They are the signs of the bread and the wine. He says they are indeed symbolic. They are signs, but they're not empty signs. They really do render that which they portray. So they render to us the presence of Jesus Christ and his salvific benefits, that's a tough one, all the work of salvation that he has accomplished on our behalf. How is this possible? Calvin explained it in two ways, always affirming that it is a mystery. One, it could be that when the church celebrates the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit raises up the church so the church ascends to fellowship with Christ, commune with Christ who is in heaven. Two, another possibility is that the Holy Spirit causes Christ to descend to fellowship and commune with the church as it celebrates the Lord's Supper. In either case, there is a spiritual presence of Jesus Christ. It goes beyond just mere memorial. Christ is present with all his salvific benefits when the church celebrates the Lord's Supper. So this one is not as much a direct conflict with um, two different verses. Like I said, it doesn't it doesn't really lay out some kind of protocol for uh, exactly how you should celebrate this and um, and answer these questions about um, transubstantiation and consubstantiation. And that's kind of the point. It's ambiguous. It's, it's basically um, describing a historical event according to the Gospels. We, we won't get into um, debating how historical it is or isn't now. But it's laying out an event that it's claiming happened in history. And then the church has taken that and kind of run with it and tried to develop this uh, sacrament. And it's come out on all different sides because it's not really it's not really clear. So, yeah, that was a great summation. Um, obviously, I, I believe it's uh, in Corinthians um, <clears throat> where it's reiterated about, like, do this in remembrance of me or as often as you drink it. Um, so it had become like a ceremonial practice, at least under the early church. Um, of But these doctrines, it's like, you know, the most obvious reading is that it's really blood, blood and body, 
Right. Yeah. I mean, if you were just going to read it on the surface, but then like you said, how we are to do it in remembrance, um, that doesn't sound like, like as much of a miracle at that point. Yeah. I mean, so on one hand, it's, it's like the, it's either if it's, if it's really the blood and the body, um, which would be the first reading that you would have if you were just reading Matthew, um, then yeah, it seems like a, a miracle. And then the Catholic view seems right. Um, if you're just reading Paul, then it's just in remembrance and maybe Zwingli is right. But Luther and Calvin have complicated theologies that they also think are, are right. Um, so again, it's a reliance on a bunch of ways to construct a narrative that allows these differing perspectives to be saying the same thing. But certainly um, the tradition, everybody's affirming that tradition, whether they're affirming it in the same way open question yeah i think that well two things first of all with the transubstantiation view i just think it's really convenient how there it's again totally unfalsifiable there's there's a miracle happening here that we want you to believe in but it's completely out of the realm of test you can't test it in any way just believe what we're telling you on this and um so right away that bothers me but the, the second point and two again i keep coming back to this the crux of the whole idea is that Listen, this is a dividing issue, and it's a simple one. I mean, I read really quickly a you know a paragraph about each each of the four different major viewpoints on the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, you could have had a verse or two if uh, if the Holy Spirit was guiding the writing of the Bible, and he knew, hey, this is going to be an issue that's going to one of these issues that's going to divide my church. Uh, maybe I should just put a little clarification in here, um, but there's not. Because, again, everybody is forced to believe this super high view of Scripture, that it's basically authored by God. They, they wouldn't say it in those words. And because of that, it's perfect in every way. Well, I think if it was perfect in every way, you wouldn't have an ambiguous text that many different people would translate and interpret in different ways, and it would divide the church to the centuries. Um, but let me move on, Ben, because we still have a lot to get to. And the other sacrament in the Protestant church is infant baptism versus believer baptism. So we're talking about baptism. I won't, I won't quote you the verses, but um, in the New Testament, there's really no reference to, to baptism in the Old Testament. I have read a few different um, people saying that it existed in one form or another, but somewhere between the old and new Testament historically um, baptism became a practice because when you hear about John the Baptist before Jesus, um, before Jesus ministry um, was just going out and baptizing. And it's kind of just uh, described in the new Testament as if it's just a thing that was done. Uh, like as if people would know what baptism is, it, it wasn't defining it or explaining it. Like I said, when, when you read it, it seems to me that it's just kind of, you, it's taking it for granted that everybody just knows what baptism is already. Um, and so John the Baptist was baptizing people in the river. The famous baptism is Jesus himself being baptized by John the Baptist, and we, we really won't get into that. But the bottom line is, this is a practice that is done to this day. Um, it's one of the ritualistic things that Protestant churches do, and, and Catholic church, but Protestant ch churches do on a regular basis. And um, this is another dividing issue. You have um, 
pedo baptists which believe or infant baptists who believe that every infant that's born should be baptized um and you have believer baptism which is more of the baptist church view which which basically says no you you must come to some kind of a faith some kind of an understanding of of the gospel message um before you go out and elect to be baptized so very briefly i have a few verses for each side of this the let's start with the baptist view acts 238 says repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the holy spirit so that seems pretty clear in order to be baptized the first step is to repent and certainly an infant just born um, really doesn't have the ability or understanding to do that and acts now later in acts acts 8 37 in response to the eunuch's request to be baptized peter says if you believe with all your heart you may again they say belief is a prerequisite to baptism and if you do not believe with all your heart then you may not be baptized one last text is mark 16 16 which i will note uh, is very likely not to be um, part of the original gospel of mark i'm mentioning it now because it definitely will get it is still a very early text and it will give us some insight into what the early church believed and taught about this mark 16 16 says he who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be damned again belief comes before baptism here he who believes is baptized an infant is incapable of belief therefore an infant cannot be baptized so again i'm i'm painting with a really broad brush here uh, but that is generally speaking the baptist view ben i know you grew up in a baptist church would you pretty much agree with uh that perspective yeah i think that that's exactly the baptist view okay so i grew up in a reformed church calvinist church and we believed in infant baptism um and the arguments for infant baptism is a little bit more complicated because it's not there's not really a a one single clear verse you can go to but i actually think you can make a pretty compelling case also from the bible that infant baptism is the correct view uh number one they talk about the covenant they have a very calvinist um christians have a very covenantal view where god is perpetuating his church throughout history and he's really working through families to do this if you go back to our earlier episode about christian family values we go into a lot of detail about that and whether or not the new testament actually teaches that um, but this is the view of the calvinist reformed church and they would say that that covenantal view that that covenant is is totally still in effect from the old testament all the way through the new testament so of course um your children are in the covenant they should be marked out um through baptism um pedo baptists believe that baptism is a sign similar to circumcision in fact some pedo baptists actually refer to baptism as christian circumcision i've heard that before and since infants were circumcised in the old testament while the new circumcision for gentiles um, or christians going forward is they should be baptized um, and but the main argument that i've heard uh defending infant baptism uh 
and I think it's a pretty good argument. It comes from uh, verses in the New Testament that talk about household baptisms. So I won't go through them now other than to give you the references. Uh, Cornelius and his household in Acts 10, 47 through 48. It's again mentioned in Acts eleven fourteen. Lydia and her household, Acts 16, 15. Stephanus and 1 Corinthians, now this is Paul, 1, 16. Uh, Crispus, another one in Acts 18, 8. And Jailer, Acts 16, 32 through 33. So there's never an instance in any of these verses where it says the, the infants or the children were baptized, but it does talk about the household. And people just assume, well, the infants were part of that household. And it does kind of make sense when you when you think about kind of a patriarchal family where the the father is the head of the house and, you know, his wife is usually subjugated to him and the children are subjugated. So they basically have to do what um, the head of the house says. This also goes along with Calvinism in general, which basically says, no, they're not... The children don't have to make uh, a choice on this. We were talking about predestination versus free will. Well, predestination says God has marked out before the beginning of time. So it's not really some kind of action of your belief that's going to make this determination. So, of course, we just baptize all our children as soon as they're born. Um, and I, I want to note a couple things. There are many other controversies surrounding baptism. Uh, the controversy of baptismal regeneration. We spoke about faith versus works, and this is part of that. Uh, so I won't go too into too much detail other than to say the work of baptism is a saving work for Catholics. It's actually like, um, you know, it's there's something about baptism of, of itself is, a, is actually a work that saves you. Um, and for Protestants, it's largely a symbolic or a labeling act. Um, so we won't get into that. And then um, the other controversy is just what mode of baptism. Um, it sounds trivial, but this alone has divided churches. So do you sprinkle? Um, do you pour the water? Do you do full immersion? Um, so sprinkling symbolizes the cleansing sprinkled blood of Christ, whereas pouring represents the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, whom Christ gave us on the day of Pentecost. Uh, immersion um, comes from Romans. We, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We might too may walk in newness of life. And I can give you all the references but that's just to show you that again you can use the bible and come up with like very logical reasonable reasons to do all these different things but yet the whole church is completely divided on these issues whether or not an infant can be baptized or if you have to believe before you're baptized and then what form of what mode of baptism will happen and then the other uh controversy surrounding baptism um, which actually has divided the church in a way, but it's very strange. It's uh, baptism for the dead, which is one of these, we, we might do it in a segment called Bible Says What at some point, because it's, it's a very strange passage. It's only once in the Bible, as far as I know, in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? So 
there's a practice of that was happening in the early church in the days of Paul, so extremely early, where they were um, baptizing uh, people that had passed away. I would say, without doing too much research on it at this point, that this probably has to do with, um, again, the eminency of Christ's return, how people were really concerned because they felt Jesus was coming back any day now. And uh, because Jesus said he was coming back in their lifetime. And then they said the people were really scared that, oh, no, these people have died already and Jesus hasn't yet returned. So one solution to that is like, well, we can still baptize them um, postmortem. And then there's a lot of debate about whether uh, Paul uh, endorsed this practice or if that verse that I just read is actually speaking against the practice, which, again, it's not really clear. Um, And he never says do it or don't do it. So... It's just really hard to know. I will also say that the um, Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, they actually practice this to this day. Um, This was practiced by some early Christian groups like the Serinthians and the Marcionites. And Tertullian affirmed the practice. He affirmed that it was legitimate um, among the New Testament Christians. Uh, And then it was later forbidden by the councils of Carthage, Uh, in the last decade of the 4th century AD and is therefore not practiced in modern mainstream Christianity anymore, other than, like I said, the Mormons. So maybe that was a little too much detail about baptism for the dead, but you can see the controversies in general surrounding this issue of baptism. And again, they're all legitimate issues because uh, it's ambiguous in the Bible. It never says, yes, infants should be baptized. And that would be an easy verse for the Holy Spirit to have included if he didn't want his church to be divided over this issue. In one sense, you could say that the church has interpreted the Bible and developed different practices from these different passages. And I think that there's some truth to that. But I also think that these passages reflect different practices that were already happening in early Christianity. Like you said, Tertullian, um, like endorsing the practice of baptism of the dead. I think that uh, when you asked me the question uh, earlier in the week about uh, baptism by immersion, um, I had just looked in one of the New Testament textbooks um, that I have, and they were talking about in the early church that they found evidence that in some places they were baptizing people in shallow rivers, so they were using sprinkling. In some places they had pools that they use, but the pools were not deep enough to fully immerse someone. So they think they use some other technique. Um, In some places they used various combinations. So they think that baptism by immersion was the predominant practice, but there were other communities that did different practices. Um, When it comes, like the baptism of the dead is probably a perfect example. I'm sure there were some communities that were baptizing people. Like the idea that these practices were becoming so codified when this early church was expecting the return of the, of the son of man any day, um, eminently to the point where they were not even getting married. Like we talked about on a previous episode, um, you know, they weren't super concerned. Probably this was a way to mark themselves as believers, mark their families as believers, set themselves apart from, uh, and into their community. I think that the Eucharist functioned in much the same way. It's a way to have a communal meal originally, and I don't think that they were fixated on these um, doctrinal issues in the same way, but there probably were different practices and different interpretations that eventually found sort of development later on 
or laid like in the unconscious of Christianity only to become uh, developed later on. Um, right. But I've also found it interesting, even just looking at the, or this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it, it, it relates to when you look at the early church fathers, so many things that they believe, and we'll, I'm, we're going to touch on this later in some of the other uh, issues that we talk about. They affirm certain things that later becomes heresy. And these are the guys that are really closest to the time that we have, aside from the New Testament. Um and so it's interesting that they have these really divergent, unorthodox, what we would call unorthodox beliefs, <clears throat> when they really precede orthodoxy and are only become unorthodox after the fact, years and years later. Right, exactly. So it's it's just like, uh, and, it's, and it's also funny that the LDS always seems to pick up on these strange passages and run with them. So it's like... You know, no mainstream church is baptizing the dead, but the LDS somehow finds that obscure passage, and that's what they they run with. Classy, uh, classy bunch of guys over there. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think that was my my basic comment. I just think it's it's interesting when you look. The really, it's like the early church had divergent passages, and I think that the scriptures reflect these divergent practices, especially when it comes to baptism. Um, there's also like evidence, archaeological evidence of baptizing of infants that were buried, that were baptized. Um, and I think that there in the Bible, it talks about slaves and families that were baptized yes. also. So, I mean, certainly I was, I was surprised when I looked at it, how many, because of being raised in a Baptist church and sort of assuming that uh, believer baptism was really clear. <clears throat> and just looking at all the passages in the new Testament that reference baptism, um, how many were uh, like sort of, could be interpreted as uh, either whole families getting baptized, other passages that were talking about baptism in a way that clearly wasn't talking about water baptism, but baptism by the Spirit. Or So it's not like super, it's not an extensively covered subject in the New Testament. No, uh, that's kind it's of it's become incredibly controversial, obviously. Yeah, and to me, the part that I always have an issue with is this idea that we are supposed to determine these things through you know, deep, you know, theological study is something that should be a simple thing that could easily be, uh, you know, cleared up with a verse or two in the Bible, but yet it's not. And then the, well, how do we come to the correct answer? Well, you have to, you know, read this scholar and read in depth about that. And it's, to me, it's kind of a uh, fool's endeavor because like I always say, you can, two very intelligent people can, uh, legitimately believe either one of these positions as seen in the debates you can you can watch you know really um, good debates on this subject between two different scholars that really know their stuff and they've completely come to different different views on it uh, and i think it's that debate alone the fact that there is a debate i think is so problematic that's kind of the point of this whole series like there there really shouldn't be a debate if the bible is inerrant and if the bible is speaking clearly there really shouldn't be that much of a debate yeah if anything this should show that it, there's not a clarity where there should be in the biblical teachings or that where the teachings have evolved is so far flung from the original passage. It, uh, clearly, the original passage was something that was not interpreted clearly or was not easy to interpret or could be interpreted many different ways. Right. Um, and like you said in the last episode, you know, does, does the writer of Acts think that 
he is laying out some kind of a handbook for the churches for the next 2000 years and beyond. Uh, I don't think so. I think he's giving a history of um, it's certainly a polemic. He's, he's trying to persuade that um, Jesus um, is the son of God that who, who should be worshiped. But I don't think that, I don't think that he's creating a book of rules and a roadmap, but that that's exactly what Christians have done is they've tried to systematize it into a set of guidelines for how to organize the church. Yeah, it's definitely not acts. I mean, you could make that case, maybe, maybe the gospel polemics, maybe they thought this is something that will be lasting or this will catch on or this will become, I mean, I, I can't imagine that they had the foresight to think this will be a global religion. I'm sure they didn't have that foresight, but um, to at least have the hope that someone's re, uh, will be creating disciples through these narratives. Um, but to think that Paul was thinking like in 2000 years, they'll be reading these letters and formulating uh, church theology. I mean, Paul, I think thought that Jesus would be back any day and 2000 years from now, would be the millennial reign of of God on earth or or whatever you know whatever he right. uh, whatever uh eschatology he held I don't think they were intended that way I don't think that the author could have ever imagined that they would be that way um or even that they would be all assembled in the same book where they would be uh forced to harmonize with other authors from that period who may or may not have been saying the same thing Bible Says What? Welcome to Bible Says What, the segment where we take a look at strange and unusual verses in the Bible. Today, we are going to look at one from Deuteronomy. So this is Deuteronomy 23.2, and it says, No one of illegitimate birth may enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23.2. So, right off the bat, to me, this seems horrible. I would translate illegitimate birth to mean a child born out of wedlock. And we'll talk about this a little bit more because I know there are differing views on this. There's a lot of stuff in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Old Testament that, you know, prohibits various disfigurements from entering the assembly and other things which... If in a modern context, we look at kind of horrified by this. I mean, it's just straight up discrimination here. There's nothing inherently wrong about this individual who was born of illegitimate birth. He's a 100% human being and deserves all the rights and freedoms associated with that. And when you have God basically pronouncing him as somehow uh, less, he cannot even be in the assembly. That's taking away like the communion with his, you know, fellow community, the other members of his community. It's basically removed. I, I don't think we realize the significance of saying they not, they're not allowed to enter the assembly. I think it's probably, um, you know, it's almost like an excommunication. Like you're, you're removing their ability um, to commune religiously in, their, in all their ceremonies with um, their community. And my question to you, Ben, is did they actually enforce this i mean it says even to the 10th generation i mean this what you're talking now about <laughs> um you know how many years of uh prohibition here 
Yeah, I don't even know what they would consider a, a generation, how long that would be, if they would just actually like keep track of... I, I mean, I think that the whole thing to keep in mind with these passages from the Hebrew Bible is that most of these laws were carried in oral traditions until the captivities, basically, is when they were put down on paper. So they weren't written before that. They probably were never actually practiced, like, to the 10th generation, people being banned from worship. The most interesting thing about the passage is the the verse that is translated somewhat of illegitimate birth. Um, and like you said, that sort of implies that it's a person that's born out of wedlock. Uh, Robert Atler, who's a, a scholar of the Hebrew Bible, said he translated it as misbegotten. And he basically says the Hebrew word is mamzer. Um, they're not sure what the etymology of the word is. Uh, but he says it, it comes later on to mean bastard, but the convincing consensus of both traditional and modern commentators is that it refers to the offspring of a taboo or incestuous union. So it could be something as, like we would say, maybe as innocuous as a child born out of wedlock, or it could be something as as bad as a child born of some sort of an incestuous union. Either way, it's interesting that the uh, child, it seems like, is banned, or the you know the person that's born is banned, and not the actual offender commits the act that uh, that creates the misbegotten seed. But yeah, it's not often, I think, in the Bible where you see the like the sins of the fathers visited on future generations. So I'm curious how many other places this happens. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I know off the top of my head, there are other uh, examples of this. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, it talks about God showing compassionate and being gracious and slow to anger. Yet, toward the end of verse 7, it says, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So the Bible is not immune from having God punish children for the sins of their parents. Um, it would be an interesting topic to explore further because I'm pretty sure there's verses where it says pretty explicitly that God doesn't do that. And uh, maybe that's we can do that on a Bible versus Bible another time. But um, yeah, in, in the context here, um, it's interesting because here you have a punishment going out to the 10th generation. But um, again, coming back to this, the uh, whether it's a the offspring of an incestuous relationship or if it's um, the offspring of a union outside of wedlock, I think that it's still a terrible teaching because there's nothing intrinsically wrong with this person, and um, they're, you're not treating them like a, a full human being. I guess this is just my own like morality that I'm imposing on the Bible, but I think most people in our modern era would agree with me on that. Yeah, it's certainly, um, if people are all about human responsibility and humans are only responsible for themselves, this uh, teaching doesn't even allow this person to be responsible for themselves without excluding them from uh, the community of worship. To take it literally as some sort of a guide for morality, this will probably be just the thing that I keep going back to in these segments, but the problem is if you have to look at this passage and say, like, what's the moral teaching here, um, as opposed to being able to say, well, what does this tell us about 
what the Israelites, the stories they were telling to themselves at that period of time, or what is the author trying to say um, in this text. I think those questions are of historical value and are good. I think that it's problematic when you're trying to say, this is going to teach me some sort of a moral lesson. I mean, I think it's very likely that um, it was practiced at the time to some degree. I think the part of it that probably is an exaggeration are the, uh, you know, having to up to the 10th generation being part of this uh, law because it would be a very difficult thing to police, to manage. I mean, you would be, you would be doing a lot of like uh, genealogy searches to try to get to the bottom of like who could and couldn't enter the assembly, assuming you had, you know, eight generations ago, someone in your family line that uh, was the offspring of an illegitimate birth, well, then boom, you're, you're out. So I think it's also, it, you know, the way a family tree works with branching paths all over the place, it would make something like this um, virtually impossible to uh, manage. And in fact, my guess would be, we'd have to talk to a mathematician, but virtually nobody would be actually allowed in the uh, in the assembly of the Lord, because most likely somewhere in, t- you know, going back 10 generations, somewhere along the line, somewhere in your family tree was probably the product of an illegitimate r- relationship. Yeah, well, I mean, clearly, like, no one would be alive, obviously, from that first initial offense. <laughs> and um, there would no one would be alive to police it. So it's like, what are you writing the family's name down and they're supposed to keep track of the Like it does not, it doesn't make logical sense. I think also like uh, there's numerical, um, I think 10 is one of the numbers that constantly comes up in generations in the, uh, the Old Testament too, because a lot of the generational numbers and the genealogies and stuff are really like a little too perfectly... Um, the, the numbers are all kind of like set up in a way that clues you in that it's probably not historical, but it's created in some sort of a literary way. So, but yeah, I think that you're right. Like even logistically, it wouldn't be possible to ban people 10 generations. It's really like interesting because even the when the scribes and the editors were putting together the Old Testament, they weren't showing a tremendous amount of discretion as far as continuity or consistency like they had various sources that they were combining together in ways that didn't seem to it didn't seem to bother them if they were pulling apart or uh contradicting each other and some of it was just taking old court cases or old traditions and saying like it's really bad for people to be having incestuous relationships or we think it's bad for people to be having um, relations out of wedlock. And so we create these prescriptive texts that carry a huge punishment to show that, you know, this is really a bad thing. And now we're like at the point where we've sort of held to such a literal view um, and are so trapped by that like forced literalism where it has to be the exact word of the Bible um, is true in every way that you have to read this passage and somehow make sense of it. So does that mean we should do this practice in the church now? Like, I don't understand how this passage is going to make, like, what 
good guidance it gives, except again, like if you take it in the most general sense and you say, okay, well, you know, maybe it's not good. I really don't care about people having um, children out of wedlock, but if you're going to say that that's a moral uh, position that you have, then okay, I can understand some sort of uh, prescriptive law to keep people from doing that. Um, if you don't want people having incestuous relationships, then having a law that discourages that with a big penalty that makes sense, even if that penalty is not actually followed. Um, but the problem is reading that 2,500 years later and saying this should be literally taken as God's word and um, how do we apply it to our lives. That's, I think, a problem. Yeah, and again, coming back to what I said, the um, I don't have a problem with anyone having children out of wedlock either. And um, but I do have a problem with incestuous relationships, but certainly the offspring is not to blame. I think that you're right. It's not right to blame the offspring of any type of a union for something that they didn't have any control over. And you, you're not accountable for how you're conceived. So it's a weird punishment for someone that's not responsible for um, doing anything wrong. Um, passage that has a lot of problems. This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at four verses, three of which are real and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and find the imposter. Once we have each made our choice, I will open up the sealed envelope and reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. Take it away, Ben. All right, verse number one. If anyone has caused grief... He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent. Not to put it too severely. Verse number two. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book ye have written. Number three. But as oft as they repented and sought forgiveness with real intent, they were forgiven. And number four, but with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Okay, these are uh, kind of difficult here. Uh, another, uh, it's a batch where I think that uh, it's hard to identify because they all seem pretty biblical. Number two is interesting to me, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book ye have written. I don't remember this. And I feel like I would have remembered that. Number two is sticking out to me. Yeah, it's kind of... Uh, I when, I when I initially read it, I thought that um, it could be the false witness. But I think that could be something Paul said, too. Um, maybe he didn't necessarily literally mean to blot himself out but like uh he sort of figuratively speaks in those exaggerated tones sometimes these are good because it's almost like uh like a theme of forgiveness um so you have these verses that are all talking about forgiveness and it uh makes it more complicated because they seem to be speaking pretty in a way that's uh 
sound biblical. Um, so number two, like I was talking about, um, I do remember a verse. I, I don't remember where, but I know it's Paul talking about um, how God has kind of overlooked the sins of the world um, before Christ came, but now is calling all men to repent. And I'm wondering if this is a part of that. Um, but now, please forgive their sin. But that's t- a total guess. But yeah. maybe, but that at least would put it in context to say there is some precedent to think that could be biblical. Um, verse 1 almost doesn't sound crazy biblical to me. If anyone has caused grief... He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. So this yeah. this is, if it's biblical, it's a letter. Um, so again, we're, t- we're looking at possibly Paul here. Um, or pseudo-Paul. Number one does seem kind of weird. Um, whoever is speaking is um, not really saying anything very severe. Um, I'm looking at three and four, and um, there's nothing that sticks out to me as being really unusual. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're both genuine. It's just I, I don't I don't see anything there that um, raises any flags. Yeah, that's sort of the way I feel too. They're pro- I mean, there could be a fake that's uh, mixed in with that. It's sort of a, a milk toast false witness that doesn't really. Um, it's not really an important um, distinction, so it doesn't stick out. Um, it's just kind of a generic, uh, you know, forgiveness is good. Or forgiveness allows you to serve. I think I'm going to say number one is the false witness. Um, just because I think the, the language is kind of strange. Um, and like using grieved that many times... I don't know. I mean, it could be real. I, f- I feel like it, maybe it's from uh, some sort of extra biblical uh, apocryphal source or something like that. But yeah, I, I'm going to go with number one. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to go with number two. That's the one that originally stuck out to me. And um, again, I just feel like often the way that I do these is by thinking about like, would I have remembered a verse like this? And in this case, I feel like I would have remembered it, but um, I've certainly been wrong before. So I will now proceed to open the wax-sealed envelope that Diana has prepared for me. And I will start with um, verse 1. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. This comes from 2 Corinthians 2.5. It is real. Um, verse 2. Uh, but, but now please forgive their sin, but if not then, blot me out of the book you have written. That comes from Exodus 32.32. 32. That is real. Oh, wow. Uh, interesting. It must have been the book no, Moses was writing. Yeah, exactly. They're like, yeah, now before you finish the uh, Torah... Just blot me out of it, unless you're going to forgive the sins of wandering in the desert. It definitely uh, 
And Moses is like, and uh, Moses is like, I'm trying to uh, dictate my own death here. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm trying to write my own death. You know how hard that is. Been highlighting the the problem of uh, Exodus or the Pentateuch being written by Moses because he records his own death. Uh, but let me move on. Number three. Um, but as oft as they repented and sought forgiveness with real intent, they were forgiven. And this comes from the Book of Mormon, Moroni oh 6.8. I thought, I'm like, it doesn't, you don't get forgiveness every time you seek it in Christianity. <laughs> this has got to be from Mormonism. But I didn't, uh, I didn't have the, the guts to pull the trigger on it. To me, this just read completely uh, biblical. I, I didn't even, like I said, it didn't even raise a flag. I never knew when we started the uh, Skeptics Bible Project that it would be a slow walk towards Mormonism. Because <laughs> as we read uh, from the Book of Mormon um, occasionally, it does seem like it has some pretty biblical uh, precepts. Yeah, we should actually do a show about uh, Mormonism in the Book of Mormon. And uh, no, by all accounts, Joseph Smith was a, an absolute uh, biblical genius. And um, clearly his command of language... Um, is excellent, and his ability to uh, write in the vein of Scripture is amazing, and we see that here. And number four comes from Psalm 130, um, verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. So, good job, Diana. You fooled both of us today, and um, you beat us. We were not able to figure it out. You win false witness. Well, Ben, we've gone on for a long time. Um, I think maybe it's a good idea to kind of end here for today and then pick it up on the next episode. What do you think? I think that sounds good. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at Skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Hey.